Hey, hey travelers. travelers. I'm Taylor. I'm Cassie. And, and this, this is, is Going, going past, past the Veil. The Um, just also a really quick disclaimer, guys, with this episode, we are recording kind of earlier in the days now, and so my kids are up. They're upstairs, and they're running around like crazy, and I'm not cool enough to have, like, those sound barriers around me yet, so they can't hear me, but I can hear them sometimes. So once we get a little bit more famous, maybe I can get something like that. Who knows? Cassie, do you want to go ahead and go over some of our announcements of what everybody can expect from season two? Absolutely. So for season two, we have a new short and sweet intro. We have updates coming to the website, our Patreon, and Teespring. And where you can go for those will be at the end of the episodes. So we can get right into it at the beginning of our episodes. New episodes will air now on Wednesday mornings and at 6 a.m. Central Time instead of 8. So those of you who have to commute or have earlier jobs you'll be able to listen to it earlier on wednesdays instead of having to wait we heard you guys and we're delivering and season two will be a little more heavy on the true crime and don't worry we're still doing the spooky and unexplainable and conspiracy theories but we wanted to throw some new stuff at you we will still be doing horoscopes and mental checks on our normal episodes but for our true crime episodes we're going to be giving you fun facts about true crime And thanks to Taylor's brilliant mind, she came up with doing what we're going to call blind recordings, which she will explain more before she starts her case. Awesome. Thank you, Cassie. So as you heard, we are going to kick off the beginning of season two with some true crime episodes in a segment we like to call Going Past the Crime. (laughs) Get it? Get it, guys? Going past the veil, going past the crime. Do you see? We got something there. We're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And with these episodes, we are going to be doing what is called a blind episode for the host. So basically, I'm not going to know what Cassie's working on, and she doesn't know what cases I've been working on. So when we go in and we record, usually we share our scripts so that we can see them and we can talk and, you know, we we have our own talking parts in there. But we're not going to do any of that. So Cassie can't see anything about this case as of right now. I don't even know what it's about, guys. Yeah, so exactly. So Cassie has no clue what this is about. And we kind of did this with the Tegan Lane case that we did back in season one where we kind of gave you guys a little bit of taste of the true crime. So we really liked it. We thought it was really cool. And we're going to record each other. So we're going to get the real and raw reactions of each other. So yeah, I think that's what we're going to do. Hopefully you guys like it. And if not, we like it. So yay. Oh, (laughs) another thing we're going to start doing with our true crime episodes is that instead of us giving you your your horoscope and mental checks for these episodes, we're actually going to give you a true crime fact. And it can be a funny fact. It can be a silly fact. It could be like a really dark fact. Cassie and I are going to take turns. So Cassie's going to give us a fact on my episodes and I'm going to give a fact on hers. So Cassie, go ahead and give us our first true crime fun fact. The true crime fun fact for today is H.H. Holmes is considered to be America's first serial killer. Which, he's got to be the first recorded one, right? I mean, there's got to be other ones. Yeah, the first, like, documented serial killer. Yeah, because, I mean, people snap. People are crazy. 
So I'm assuming there were ones before him. But yeah, that is kind of an interesting fact. What did he do? I can't, I don't even know. Like he sounds so, this I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. I believe he started out with being like a fake doctor and did a bunch of like fake like insurance claims but then he went even further and created this building that had a bunch of fake doors and fake floors and it was basically like a (gasps) like a fun house but for death i remember i remember because he would have doors that would open to blank walls and like i know exactly what you're talking okay well that's gotta be an episode one day oh yeah for sure Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump into today's episode. I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a small disclaimer. Uh, This case will be discussing child abuse, torture, and murder, and it's not for the faint of heart. Everything we're going to go over today, the details, everything, um, it gets pretty nitty-gritty, and it is all public knowledge. With that being said, though, if this is something that you do not feel comfortable listening to, we completely understand, and we will see you the next episode. So it's okay for you guys to go ahead and stop listening. We totally understand, and we'll see you next time. Okay, for all my travelers that are still here, hi, hello, let's get going. You're going to want to buckle in because this case is going to make you want to yell, scream, cry, cuss, and just literally lay your head down and sob because that is exactly what I did through all this. We are going to discuss the tragic, heartbreaking case of Gabriel Fernandez. Cassie, have you heard of Gabriel Fernandez? Did I do good? Did you not know about this case? I know about it in like the vaguest sense possible. Like I know there is a documentary on Netflix and I've seen part of the first episode, but that's it. I don't know any of the details. Okay, so it's still going to be a blind react for you, basically. So this is a case that I kind of dreaded researching. Like, I knew I wanted to do it, and I knew I wanted to do an episode on it, but it was kind of hard for me to really say, okay, let's sit down and actually do this. But there were so many times during the documentary and different podcasts that I listened to that I had to stop it because – it, it just shows such a fundamental breakdown. It shows the breakdown in the system and, and how his death, really looking at everything, by the end of this episode, I guarantee you're going to feel the same way I do, but by the end of this episode, you're going to say Gabriel Fernandez should have been saved on so many different accounts. So we're going to go through this piece by piece, and we're not only going to find out what happened, but why it happened and how it could have been avoided, which, I mean, okay, every everything could be avoided, but this one is so like in your face should have been avoided kind of thing we're going to start in the very beginning with pearl pearl fernandez was born august 29th 1983 to robert and sandra fernandez it is said that her father was in and out of jail during her childhood and at age nine pearl began her troubling path with drugs and drinking guys she was nine years old she states that a lot of her troubles began when she really really was under the, you know, thinking that her mother just did not care for her. And so Pearl dropped out of school at eighth grade and eventually ran away from home. Pearl claims that during her teenage years, she was almost raped by her uncle and then was actually held hostage on numerous accounts by different men and was raped during this time. And she had a lot of suicidal thoughts. Later in life, we find out that Pearl was diagnosed with a depressive disorder, developmental disorder, and possible PTSD, and also an eating disorder. So Pearl had four children is what I kept finding, you know, the 
everything I saw, it was four children. But then eventually I heard she only had three children. It's kind of confusing, but Pearl had a few children with a man named Arnold. And Gabriel, of course, was one of those children. And I think it's pretty clear, you know, with us talking about it, that Pearl did not have the best of childhoods. But that does not excuse all the horrible things she did. No way, no how. But it does kind of give you a layout of her path in life. And I think that with any type of murder and any type of abuse case, we always find that the suspect or the person who's been convicted of it has had a really really off childhood. So I just wanted to kind of get that in here and let you guys know about that. On February 20th, 2005, Pearl Fernandez gave birth to a healthy little boy named Gabriel Fernandez. And at this point in time, Pearl was not interested in keeping the baby. In fact, prior to the birth, it's been noted that she, you know, would complain about being pregnant, that she really didn't want to have him, that, you know, she wished she could have gotten rid of him, all, all kinds of really, really sad things. But she did go ahead and follow through with the pregnancy. And when she went into labor and she had him, she actually left him at the hospital. He was three days old. And she called her uncle Michael and his partner David. And before she went into labor, they kind of discussed the fact that uh, Michael and his partner would go ahead and raise Gabriel. And so she called him at three days old and said, listen, your kid is here. Come pick him up from the hospital. I can't stand him already. He's already getting on my nerves, which, you know, a couple were kind of like, oh, my goodness, he's only three days old. You know, how how awful could it be right now? You know, of course he's crying. He's a newborn baby. So they went and they picked him up and the family just describes him as such a loving baby. They were, you know, they just talked about how sweet he was and how he just loved everybody. He always wanted to give everybody hugs and he just really, really cared about other people. And if you look at the photos of him being with uh, Michael and David, he is happy. You, I mean, throughout this entire case, you're going to see photos. And I mean, if you choose to look at the photos, but you see him starting off as this just happy go lucky kid. And then eventually you see his whole personality change. But while he was with David and Michael, he was, he was just such a happy kid. And then at the age of three, he ended up moving in with his grandparents. And I kind of thought long and hard before kind of putting this part into this episode. But the reason it said that he moved in with the grandparents and left David and Michael is because there was allegations towards David and Michael that they were sexually abusing him. And some of the reasonings that people said that they were was because it's the silliest reasons because Gabriel would say, oh, I love you guys. And so that family kept thinking, well, they must be touching him or they must be, you know, turning him into um, what is it that they tried to describe him as? I can't think of the exact words, but basically they were like, oh, no, David and Michael are making him gay and they must be doing something horrible to him. So there was actually an open DFS case against them. But from what I know, there's been no evidence to prove that that happened. So it's just a really sad factor in the story um, that is really sad just like the family is it's a loving family so oh no there's something must be wrong right and 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 you do see with this family and it is going to come into play later on um that being gay was not okay with some of the family members and so that's why they were like, oh, they wanted Gabriel to come into a family where it was a mom and a dad kind of situation. And it's sad. It's so sad because obviously people still have problems to this day about that kind of stuff. And it makes my heart like really, really hurt, especially because of the outcome of this story. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't something going on and I'm not saying there was something going on. All I'm saying 
is that from what I've researched and what I've heard, there's no actual evidence except for the fact that Gabriel was very in tune with his emotions. And so that made other family members think that he was gay. That's that's literally all I see. I could be wrong. There could be something else out there. So don't come at me, people. I'm just saying this is what I've heard and this is what I've researched. Anyway, so Gabriel went to go live with his grandparents. And this is his maternal grandparents, by the way. Again, at this point, while he's with the grandparents, he's still described as a fun, loving little boy. He was always smiling and making other people laugh. And throughout his entire childhood, he knew who his mom was. So he knew Pearl was his mom. And he would ask his family, like, why can't I go live with my mom? Why can't I stay with my mom? Because she had the other siblings living with her. She just didn't want Gabriel. You know, he's really upset. He He's doing whatever he can to make her smile at him or love him or, you know, anything of that nature. But he was, he was living with his grandparents at this time. He was doing well in school and he had friends and just again, was a happy little go lucky kid, right? It wasn't until about 2012 that everything like went upside down and changed. Pearl was dating a man named Isario. And I believe that's how you say his name, but they were dating and they were both on welfare. So they were getting different welfare benefits. And they realized that if they took Gabriel back into their custody and had him, they would get even more money in welfare benefits, right? So they decided to go ahead and take him with them to a barbecue is what they were saying, but they ended up just taking him home. And so the grandparents went ahead and called the police and, and everything trying to get Gabriel back. But that's where, ah, that's where this gets tricky. So what I've been told about and read about this case, Pearl never actually gave up legal custody of Gabriel even when he was little. Well, in the legal senses, I guess I should say, because paperwork was never filed for the uncle or the grandparents. And I'm not sure how they were able to enroll him in school or go to doctor's appointments with them or anything. I'm not sure how all this was able to transpire without the legal paperwork. I do know because of like my situation that if they got Pearl's like written permission that these people can do these things, then they don't, they can do whatever they need to do. Okay, and that's very likely because, like I said, she did not want him. So she 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 had made it clear from the very, very beginning that she was okay with him being with them. So that's a good point. But because they didn't have actual legal paperwork, when the grandparents called the police, the police basically said that it was a civic matter. They said they couldn't exactly prove that, you know, that they were supposed to have legal custody or anything because there was no paperwork. And so basically Pearl could come anytime she wanted to and take her child back. So it was really, really, really upsetting for the family members. And Pearl went ahead and registered Gabriel into a school closer to her. So obviously, so now he has to stop his school that he was at. He has to leave his loving grandparents and move in with his mom and the mom's boyfriend. And of course, you know, I'm sure Gabriel at first was excited because, hey, this is what he's been wanting. He wanted to be with his mom and he wanted to be with his siblings and he wanted that family, you know, the typical mom and dad family, if that makes sense. But when he started going to the school, red flags just started to appear like crazy. And before we go into this next part, I'm already starting to shake a little bit because I'm so angry at this. And I don't know, it's so frustrating. But okay, Jennifer Garcia was Gabriel's first grade teacher at the new school. She started to notice a lot of concerning things. She saw bruises 
and was very fearful that he was being abused. And let me point something out. Teachers are mandated reporters, okay? Mandated reporters are essentially people who are in regular contact with vulnerable people, such as children or elderly people or, you know, at the hospital, just anybody who's vulnerable and can't really stick up for themselves. That's what mandated reporters do. They are people who come in contact with the vulnerable people and report suspected or proven abuse. Teachers, of course, are with vulnerable people at all times. Does this mean every teacher is going to report suspected abuse? No, not necessarily. But thankfully, Jennifer Garcia went ahead and did her duty and reported the abuse that she was seeing. So Gabriel approached her with a couple questions that kind of put her over the edge. He originally asked her if it was normal for moms to hit their kids. And Miss Garcia was like, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know, is it normal to be spanked with a belt? And she said, uh, you know, what, what? What else is kind of going on? Because I think that's kind of like a gray area for some teachers because some parents believe in discipline like that and some parents don't. And it's kind of, I don't know, I've heard that it's a very gray area. I obviously don't use a belt on my kids Mm -hmm. or anything, but I've had a belt used on me. So it's, I don't know, it's a little, it's a little gray there. So she wasn't really sure how to answer that. So she kind of started asking him more questions. And then he said, well, is it normal for me to bleed after I've been spanked? And again, she starts pressing him. And so what she found out was that he was being hit with the belt, but with the metal part of the belt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was leaving marks on him. He was bleeding. It, it, it was, to me, that's 100% abuse. It was abuse. Yeah. So this set off the alarms for Jennifer Garcia, and she went ahead and called DFS, which is a child agency where you can, again, report suspected abuse. And she spoke with the first social worker that comes into play in the story. And yes, the first. That means there's four total. And, and we'll go into that later, but four social workers, okay, guys, remember this, four social workers have all come into play in this story, okay? So one day, Gabriel comes into class late, and he had bruised eyes, markings all over his face. The other students were very alarmed with the way he looked, so other first graders are looking at him and asking Miss Garcia, what's going on? What happened? Gabriel looks really hurt. And so when they all went to recess, Miss Garcia went ahead and pulled Gabriel aside and asked him what happened. And he said that, you know, he fell and he got hurt. And um, she was like, okay, well, you know, what can I do for you? Is, is everything okay? And this was after she called the DFS lady and the DFS lady did apparently follow through and, and went and spoke to the family. But like I said, Gabriel comes in late for school a few days later and he's really angry when his teacher keeps asking him what happens. And he said, fine, my mom shot me in the face with a BB gun. Okay. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And when she asked why he didn't tell the truth, Gabriel said it was because every time the lady, who we find out is Stephanie Rodriguez, the first social worker, every time she comes and talks to my mom, I get hurt a lot. And so so Miss Garcia at this point is is really, really torn because she's like, okay, what do I do? Do I keep contacting the social worker and expect him to get hurt worse? Or do I let it play out? Like, what do I do? And I feel really bad for Miss Garcia because, you know, she's doing the right things, obviously. She's contacting a social worker. She's reporting what's happening. But then what what do you do at that point when you're told that? You know what I mean? And I mean, his face, there's photos of it. His face is badly bruised and he's Aww, beaten. Poor um, baby. Right. And it's it's horrible. So Miss Garcia went ahead and spoke to Stephanie Rodriguez, again, the, the social worker after this happened. She went ahead and she picked up the phone and she called again. So it's said that Stephanie didn't really look into this case as adequately as she should have. 
because there are numerous accounts that state she didn't really do anything to see how home life was for Gabriel. So she'd stop by real quick and say, hey, what's going on? These are the reports that I'm getting. And then, of course, the family would be like, no, that's not true. And they would kind of go back and forth. So the reports that Stephanie made for Gabriel, she states in the reports that there's not really enough evidence to support abuse allegations or anything that would warrant the removal of Gabriel from the care of Pearl and Asaria, which I think is insane because this poor boy has marks all over his face. And you can tell, I mean, you're looking at him, you can see he is bruised. Like he is, it, it, he's being beaten. And yeah, Rod- what kind of evidence are they looking for? Exactly. And Miss Rodriguez is saying, oh, you know, he got into a little mishap with a sibling. This is what happened. This is what happened. And, and, and just kind of goes from there. But it's, I mean, no, he's being beaten. Like this, take this child out of their care. And after the incident with the BB gun, he didn't come to school for 13 days. And when he did come back, the students and the teacher all, had the same reports that he looked horrible i mean his skin had been peeling from his face he he had bruised eyes and miss garcia states you know she can tell that some of these marks on his face were healing so he must have been beaten shortly after he told about the bb gun so much that like he literally was healing and so they sent him back to school and he was telling everybody because of course all his friends are like what happened to you what's going on and he just told everybody he fell off of a bike oh, and okay. Gar- yeah and miss garcia went ahead and called once again called stephanie once again but never received a call back and we learn later in the story that the four social workers all involved with the case are charged like like the prosecutor went after the family but then also went after the social workers because again there's so much, okay, like we're already just in the beginning of the story. So basically this poor boy has marks on his face. He's being abused and the social worker is not taking him out. Like the social yeah, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Exactly. So they are being charged with falsifying records. At this time, Gabriel is in the custody of his mother and the boyfriend and is in Miss Garcia's classroom, okay? As the school year went on, the abuse became more apparent. And this is where I'm going to put another little trigger warning in here because I'm going to go ahead and give you more details of his abuse. And it it is kind of hard to hear. Like we talked about, he will have markings on his face from being shot with a BB gun in his face. He had patches of his hair pulled out of his scalp. He had scabs on his scalp. He had tears on his lips and bruises all around his mouth, especially, but around his eyes as well from being hit and punched. And his siblings were even telling others that he was being made to eat cat litter and was locked in a cabinet in his mother's room. Oh, my God. Yes. And I want to state that Miss Garcia was not the only one to reach out to DFS, okay? Family members did the same thing. Aunts and uncles, um, the grandparents, they were all reaching out. Well, there is a certain time that comes into play that they told sheriffs what was going on and to please, please, please go check on Gabriel. And when the sheriffs got there, they apparently got on to him for lying. And the way this worked out was when they got there, they talked to Pearl and Pearl says, Oh no, the marks on our son were from older children who had hurt him. And he had gotten into a couple tussles with some older children. So apparently this is hearsay, but apparently the sheriffs put the young boy in the back of a police car and told him, that if he kept lying, he was going to get into trouble. So, of course, a young boy who doesn't know what's going on, who doesn't know how to answer, he's going to answer the way he thinks somebody wants to hear him answer, and he doesn't want to get in trouble. So he just basically agreed with his mom to avoid everything and to get out of trouble, okay? This is what really upsets me, is that if this actually happened, you're using this tactic against this child 
who is seven, eight years old, and telling him if he doesn't tell the truth, he's going to jail. Like, do we not see an issue with that? And it's sad because, like, I have always been one that I don't tell my kids things like that. I don't ever joke around about, well, you're going to go to jail because I don't want my children to ever be scared to go up to an authoritative person and mm-hmm. ask them for help. So it, I don't know, that that really breaks my heart. This This poor little boy was being so horribly, horribly abused, and yet the cops, the social workers, um, any type of authoritative person who came into his life could not see enough evidence to remove him from that home. I just, I don't know. I don't know how to handle this, but okay, we're going to go into this next part, and this is, I don't know, this one really gets me. So... I'm sure anybody who knows about Gabriel Fernandez, you've seen the pictures of him holding up the Mother's Day card that he's making where he's holding M and he's he's smiling. Oh, and he's smiling. And then M, he's doing another silly face or something. But there are photos of Gabriel making a Mother's Day card where he would hold the letters, like I said, and you can see the bruises around his face and you can see the skin peeling from his face. And then when he's holding the the M-O-M, you can see his hands and his hands are so battered and bruised. And like maybe he was trying to fight back or something. But I mean, he you see this little boy holding these words up and you can just tell he is so hurt. And his his teacher actually asked him when they were making these cards and, and doing everything if he if he even wanted to do this. You know, she kind of gave him out. She's like, you can sit over here and help me with this and, and we can do something else together while I help other kids do this. Like, you don't have to make a Mother's Day card because she knew what was going on, you know, and she's doing everything she can to get him out of the situation. So she's like, what can I do kind of thing? And he was really eager to make the card for his mom. And so that's something that everybody says throughout this entire case is that he was so adamant about doing whatever he could to make his mom love him and after all of this abuse he still he he just wanted her to love her and he wrote in so he has the mom card right and then he goes ahead and he writes on this little thing he writes that you know his mom he loves her because she's a loving mom and she was beautiful and has a pretty smile and a pretty face and that she was as pretty as a flower and he drew a bunch of little hearts and this all happened on May 7th, 2013, two weeks before he died. Wow. And he made her coupons, you know, like those little coupons you would make your parents like when we were in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And he wrote them and he had a few different ones. And one of them said, here's a coupon. I'll clean the dishes. And then the next one says, I will be good. And then another one that said, you know, spending alone time, just me and you. And that hit me kind of hard because he just wanted his mom to love him and spend mm-hmm. time with him. And well, Miss and Miss Garcia said that it seemed like he always wanted to prove that he was going to be good. So, you know, he's smiling and you can just tell that he wanted the love of his mother and he was trying to do whatever he could to get it. And we see this a lot in abuse cases, right? The child is doing his or her best to capture the love of the parent who's abusing them. Right. And that breaks it's oh god it just hurt i'm gonna kind of jump to when miss garcia found out that he had died so he had gone a few days of not being in class and so she called and she was told by pearl that gabriel was no longer coming to school that he had moved back in with the grandparents and was going to school with them again this was not true so at this point pearl's keeping him out of school completely and to me that's showing something premeditated like something's going to happen like why would you lie like that and and keep your son out of school but miss garcia said that she felt like so relieved to find out that he was back home with the grandparents but that's all she could think about was thank god he's out of there um 
Yeah, and then when she did find out, though, that he had died, she she brought all of her students around, and she she broke the news to them, and she said all the students just were quiet, and some were started crying, and some were like, you know, we don't understand, and and how could they? You know, these are all first graders. These are first graders having to feel that pain of their friend. And one of his friends is actually on the documentary. I think her name is Kiera, and she says that she's so heartbroken because she saw her friend die and it wasn't from, you know, a car accident or sickness or a natural event. No, it was by his parent. And she says that it's just so sad to think a parent would do that. And it is. It is so sad to think as a parent, like me as a parent, I could never, ever imagine inflicting any harm. I don't even have kids and there's no way I could ever imagine like ever hurting any kids, mine, yours, anybody else's, like no way. I know. I, I, when I even have to put my kids in timeout, I get sad and I don't know. It just, God, it breaks me. It really breaks me. And I don't know, like, and I mean, part of my childhood being in foster care and seeing things happen and things happening to me, I just, I remember feeling the same way. Like, why is this happening? Why can't it be stopped? You know, like, no matter what I do, nothing's working kind of thing. And so I can only imagine how he felt at that age, trying to, I don't even know the word. I, I can't even describe it, but just trying to cope with it. I don't know. And and his teacher does go on to talk about how she is filled with a lot of guilt. She doesn't understand how, you know, she did everything right. She made the calls. She contacted the people. She got what she could going and then nobody helps him out because she can only go so far you know what I mean yeah I mean she's just the teacher she can report it but it's up to DFS and all the social workers who should have done their job that should be feeling guilty not the teacher and and another thing that is said is that he would on Fridays cry cry to her and just beg her not to make him go home and I I like what do you do what do you do in that position? How do you how do you help? You know what I mean? Because it's like you said, you do what you do. You call. You can't legally take the child home with you because you could be arrested. And it's just you feel like you trust the system, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, another thing Miss Garcia says is that at one point she pulls, you know, she pulls uh, Gabriel aside with the principal and she's talking to the principal and she's like, look at him. Look at all these bruises. Can we take photos? Can we, what can we do? And so the principal's like, no, no. See, now you're starting to overstep your bounds because you're trying to like, what was the word? Investigate it. And that's not what we do. We just report it. And she was so mad. She's like, I never went back to that principal again about anything. She's like, because if he was telling me I couldn't even take pictures. And so she actually, she would sneak photos of like the back of Gabriel and you could see like wounds on his head and like scars and things trying to heal like it, 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 I, I just know. I don't see that as quote unquote trying to investigate like if your job is to report it doesn't it make sense to document it so whenever you're reporting it you have the proof like this is what I'm seeing every day exactly exactly and they and it's I don't know it, like I said the system has failed this little boy so many times god I, I don't i don't even know and then we think this is the worst but it's not it, it's not because we're about to go ahead and talk about the night of the murder and the details surrounding the markings and just everything so i'm gonna go ahead and do another trigger warning and i know 
some of you are probably like, oh, this is like the third one. But I'm telling you, it's needed because we're going to talk about the night of the murder and the details surrounding the markings on him, the events that unfolded that night. And it's it's going to be disturbing. So if this is not something you're able to hear or want to hear, turn off this episode like right now. Go ahead. Totally fine. No judgment here. This is going to be a little rough, guys, but we're going to go ahead and listen to the 911 call. 911 one emergency. Yes, um, I would like to, um, um, my son is not breathing. Your son is what? He's not breathing. Hold on one second, I'm going to transfer you over to the fire department. Don't hang up. Um, I got, um, my son is eight years, uh, eight years old. It's your son, okay. And yes. he's not breathing? No. Does he have a, a seizure? No, he was, uh, wrestling with my other son, uh-huh. and I came in, and he just was unconscious. Okay, do you have the paramedics on the way right now? Are you right there with him? Yes, I'm right here. Okay, do you know how to do CPR? Um, I'm just doing the uh, compulsions on the chest right now. Okay, and you I need to breathe right. for him. If he's not breathing, you need to do two breaths and 30 compressions. On May 22nd, 2013, a 911 call was made by Pearl Fernandez in regards to her son not breathing. She had said that Gabriel had slipped in the shower, but at some point of the call, Isario took over the phone call and was instructed to give CPR. He is recorded as saying that Gabriel was injured because he was playing with his siblings and fell onto the coffee table. So at this point, there's already two conflicting stories. Again, Isario was instructed on how to do CPR, but when the paramedics arrived, they stated that he was not performing it. And and during the phone call too, you know, you're not hearing what would sound like somebody attempting CPR because CPR is, is a difficult thing, right guys? Like, you know, trying to hold a phone or, or talk or anything in that moment, like you just don't hear what you would normally hear or what 911 people normally hear during a CPR run. Right. So, so it's, it's, I don't want to say it's proven, but it's very, very likely. And they say this in the court too. It's very likely he was not performing CPR, especially because with the injuries that Gabriel had, you would have seen like the blood around his lips and his nose coming out because that's how bad it was. And that's what should have happened if CPR was happening and there was nothing. They didn't they didn't see those signs. It's also worth noting that when the firefighters and the paramedics arrived, they were actually ushered to the apartment by one of the siblings. So one of the siblings was out there and was frantic and was like, please go help, go help, go help, and was pointing to the house. When they arrived into the apartment, they immediately could see Gabriel was in severe distress. So they took over. They did not have a heartbeat. They couldn't register one. So they began CPR and life-saving measures. And so during this chaotic and stressful moment, Pearl, you know, lovely mom Pearl, is recorded asking if her other children are okay. So she's worried about her other children, and she's like, oh my goodness, where are they? Are they okay? Is everything all right? She's not even talking about Gabriel whatsoever. She says nothing about Gabriel at all. Well, the only thing she says about Gabriel is she just keeps telling the paramedics that he's a liar, and he's going to lie about everything. And so the paramedics kind of took note of that and thought it was really strange that that's all she could really say about her son is he's a liar he's a liar he's gonna lie to you about everything and then she actually asked because they're they're ushering them out of the house they're like listen like this is really bad like you need you know we got to take him blah 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 she's just asking about her cats then at that point she doesn't want her cats to get out of the house so she wants her door closed so that her cats are safe like <laughs> she she's not even asking about gabriel and then when they got in the ambulance to take Gabriel to the hospital, you know, as most parents would do, you're trying to get in that ambulance with them or at least tell me where you guys are going. I'm going to follow you, whatever. Nothing. 
nothing. Her or the boyfriend. Neither one of them asked where he was going or if they could come with them. That's just so messed up. Well, another messed up thing is Sario. So you got the mom who's sitting there going, where are my other children? Are they okay? Oh my goodness, close the door. I don't want my cats getting out. Um, he's a liar. He's a liar. And then Asario is telling the paramedics, listen, just want to let you know, Gabriel's gay. Like, <laughs> what, what does that have anything to do with it? It doesn't. It doesn't. It has nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter. You know, like, it doesn't matter what he is or what he, the ma- the fact of the matter is your child does not have a heartbeat. Like, uh, 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 oh my God, I don't even know. And let's, uh, okay, let's stop real quick and talk about what the home looked like. Okay. Obviously, when he gets to the hospital, they realize that this is a, a pretty severe crime. So they are they are all quick and reacting and going into the home. And they go inside the house. And it, mm, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little emotional. So forensics comes into the home to investigate. And what they do, or at least this particular person, she would bring red arrow stickers. You know, the sticky ones, like here, sign mm-hmm. here kind of thing. She had those. And so what she would do, and it was a brand new role. And what she would do is she would put them any places that she saw blood. So that she could document it later. Cassie, she ran out of the red ones and had to start using yellow stickers. That's just too much. There was that much blood. I mean, they had it everywhere and it was dried blood. There was, there was like these bats that they would use on him and it had blood on it, dried blood, and they tested it and it's all Gabriel's. So it's... That's just, that's insane. So it's not stuff that they necessarily use that night. It's just in general and overall there was blood found in the bathroom fresh blood as well the bedroom and there was this cabinet in the mom's room that apparently they would lock him in and there was blood on that too and so what they would do is they would put him in there at night and sometimes during the day but they would put handcuffs on his ankles they would stuff socks in his mouth and put a bandana over his eyes so he could not see that's just sick Uh uh-huh and all of his clothes were in a bag under the bathroom sink. And the only clothes they had out for him were two dresses that they would keep hanging up in the closet. And that's all they would let him wear. And so they would put these on him because they thought he was gay. It's like, I don't even have words. Because it's like, you wanted, you like, you're angry and you're upset. And, but you don't have the words to really portray, like, the intensity of the anger. During interviews with Pearl and Asario, it's... They were trying to break down what really happened that night and why it got to that point, which, okay, in general, it should never have gotten that point because he should have been out of the home. But this was the turning point. Asario had come home and was hearing Pearl crying. And he was like, well, what's going on? Why are you crying? And she had said that Gabriel had asked why she, Pearl, would stay with Asario when he treated her so badly. And apparently, Gabriel had told her that if he left Asario, she left Asario, then he, Gabriel, would be better and act better. A child that young should not even be thinking about that. Which is why I really don't, I don't know if that really happened. Because, you know, Isaria started to yell at him and ask him, why would he say that? What is your problem? And and Gabriel said, he's like, I didn't say that. And, and, and then he was like, that didn't really happen. And then it became a situation of like, he said, she said situation between the three of them. Right. So this part of the story like hurt my heart so damn much. I mean, it all does. But this, this was the point where I stopped and I cried like hard. Because all I can think about is is this poor little boy like trying to explain that like no I didn't do this like that's not what I meant or or, you know whatever or the fact that okay let's say he did say it but this kid cared about his mom so much 
but he's like, can you please, like, if you leave him, I'll take, I'll, I'll be better and, and everything will be better between, <sighs> it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so let's, let's go back to the night that we were discussing. Paramedics were able to get Gabriel's heart beating again while en route to the hospital. They called in and uh, told the hospital that they were bringing him in and that he was the highest priority. So the hospital had everyone ready to go when Gabriel arrived. Um, there were trauma doctors, respiratory uh, doctors, you know, in case he needed to be intubated. There were, the blood bank was, was notified. Everything was like, I mean, everything was ready to go from the, the OR, everything. Everything. And so during times like these, there is a typical trauma bay nurse who's strictly in charge of recording what's happening. Because if you think about it, you've got to notate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it's like when it's a trauma like this, you have to have one person who that's literally all they do is just document what's happening. They anything that the doctors yell out, they're writing it down. Any medicines that are administered, they're writing it down. That night, the nurse that was in charge was Christine. She said that there were so many things the doctors and nurses had to do to keep him stable that it was overwhelming even for her. And this is something she did on a normal basis. She said that they did absolutely everything and got his pulse back. And so they thought he was stable enough to move him to CT. And when they got him into the CT, he coded again. And so they had to run a code on him and do CPR and just get him back where his heart was beating. Um, Once they got him to the point where they could, I guess, hand over treatment to the children's hospital that's when it kind of all like broke through for them that's when they really you know took a look over gabriel's body like they could immediately when they saw him they knew that he had been abused but it wasn't until like they got him stable enough to be transported that they were looking over him and just could see the torture you know he had marks all over his face um the bb gun that we talked about he had a bullet in his lungs what Um, yeah so um i'm assuming so that means you know while it's going towards his face he probably inhaled it he had one stuff in his thigh that had been there for a while he had a cut in his groin he had bruises and cuts all over his face hands legs back he had what looked like burns on his throat he had scars and markings from cigarettes being put out on him and his skull was so fractured that you could feel it through his scalp so like you could feel the crunchiness of it like that's oh how my god yeah the, and he had ligatures on different parts of his body and this poor boy was just so battered and broken that it's almost unbelievable you know what i mean like it's it's almost to the point like what no kind of thing but like it, it happened right so, it seems like that's a bit excessive are you sure but it did it did this poor boy and and really i think he was only with them for like seven months and so all this oh happened during this time. So during the research and writing of this episode, I had to take a break after typing that part of it. So as you can see, I've taken a lot of breaks during this one. But um, as you guys know, I have an eight-year-old son. And as, as I'm writing this, I'm looking at him. And and I just, I, I can't, I, I just, I can't look at him and just imagine another parent looking at theirs. Their eight-year-old is hurting them like that. Like that's. It's sick. It's just. It really is. And you know, and I had things happen in my childhood that make me kind of relate to not it was never as severe as that, but like, definitely make me stop and think about how he could be feeling in those moments and just how helpless and alone he may have felt. And it's it really is a heartbreaking situation. And Gabriel was pronounced as brain dead later at the Children's Hospital. He passed away on May 24th, 2013. So he gets to the hospital on the 23rd and he dies on the 24th. Pearl and Asario were both arrested prior to him passing away. 
And Pearl was arrested for felony child endangerment, and Asario was arrested for attempted murder. So when Gabriel was pronounced dead, both Pearl and Asario were both charged with first-degree murder and torture. Jeez. Yeah. And there, there's photos online that you can look up. There's Netflix documentary photos. Um, they show things, and, and they show him laying in the hospital bed with all these marks. And, oh, let me tell you, it's disturbing. Um, I really I, – I should never have looked at those video, those photos, and I did not look for them. I did not go to Google looking for them. I, I was watching the documentary, and it flashed up, and I, I, I had to oh, walk away. He's, he's just laying in that bed so helpless. And the only word I can – really describe him as is just broken like i can't i can't think of anything else to describe him his marks or anything just broken that's all i can think about so asario pleaded not guilty to the charges and he would later be found guilty of first degree murder and guilty of the circumstances of torture tar- charges and so he is actually uh sentenced to death and and this and that was a lot of what the um society was calling for because there was a lot of when this case broke and and people started hearing about it and realizing that like there were so many breakdowns like they started right not rioting but protesting and saying like no he these people need to put like they were calling for the death penalty. Whereas you hear a lot of times when somebody is is put on death row, like a lot of people are like, no, 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 don't do it. No, everybody was like, yes, do it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and so that was, that was hard. But he, he was convicted and he is, uh, he is on death row. Pearl, during her trial, apologized to the judge and the jurors and said that she was very sorry that, he, that Gabriel had died and she really wished that he was still alive. And she said that she also hoped that her children would forgive her for her actions. And the judge, with 20 years experience, as he was giving out the, the charge, as he was basically telling them if they were guilty or not, he said, you know, he's had 20 years of being a judge and he's never, ever commented on cases. Because usually judges at the end, before they give out or after they give out their sentencing, they can comment on it and say how they feel. So if they don't agree, they can say, you know, this is what the jury found you as but i think this kind of thing the, the conduct was horrendous and humane and nothing short of evil it is unimaginable the pain that this child probably endured but he's never really commented he said but this one he he could not let it go by without saying anything and so he said that the pain that gabriel had suffered was imaginable he would even go as far as calling it animalistic, but said that he couldn't because even animals know how to take care of their young. And the judge goes on to say that he hopes that both Pearl and Asario would be in mental torture in prison. So hmm. this man who does not comment on cases said that. So Pearl is sentenced to life in prison and she had to be put into protective custody after being outed as a child murderer. After a police officer passed by and asked her, you know, like, how can you sleep at night after hurting your child like that? And if there's one thing we all know, there there is like an unspoken rule when it comes to prison. If there is one thing that's agreed on there, it is that child molesters and child abusers or killers are going to be targets. It's agreed mm-hmm. upon that you just, you don't touch a child. So she, she had to be removed. And I don't know. And then the social workers that we talked about, they actually were not convicted because they were there was charges brought against four of them. And I didn't get to really dive in deep about that, but it, it came to light that they weren't necessarily reporting everything that was happening. So they are trying to overturn the not guilty verdict on them and charge them with something else because, I mean, people are not happy about this. Like, s- still, this happened in 2013, but people are still fighting and trying to get the social workers to um to be uh held responsible which i think yeah. 
And, and I mean, cause there's so many people that are let down in the system, but like this, like I said, like this, at some point we realize there were so many people's hands in his case, police officers, social workers. I mean, at one point when Pearl goes to the, uh, to the welfare office, she takes Gabriel with him and like the, the security officer there and the receptionist both notice like he is obviously hurt like he has been abused and so they ask their upper upper hands what do we do about this because we can tell like he's he's really in danger and nothing happens nothing happens they they call a sheriff out but that's it so obviously there's a lot of moving parts in this case there's a lot of people who failed him like 100 percent failed gabriel and i'm i'm not gonna I, I i'm not sleeping well since i really like dove into this case because it it was it shouldn't have happened it should not no have not at all he like he literally he went to the teacher for help and and you know what some people kind of like oh well, miss garcia should have done more but i think she did everything she could mm-hmm. especially when gabriel came to her and was like i'm not gonna tell you the truth anymore because i just keep getting hurt like what do you do and then she still called and she's like listen like we need to get this child out of there and for her not to get any really good responses back from them it's it's inexcusable it is inexcusable and i'm sorry but the four social workers who were in charge of him I think should be convicted because he died under their watch, essentially. Yeah, because they didn't do their jobs. Like, if nothing else, nothing else, they should be blacklisted and not be able to do social work anymore. Right. And I didn't really, I, I really should have, like, researched more on what's happened to them. But I, at that point, I was, like, so entirely pissed that I was like, if I look into this and I find out they're living their lives so happy, I'm not going to be able to handle it. I can't. Like, yeah. I, I can't, I can only look at it so much more before I absolutely lose my shit. And I will never, ever, 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 this will be the one case. Like, you know, people, they always find those cases that they always talk about. Like, my conspiracy case that I always talk about is the Titanic being the Olympic, okay? That'll never end. I will always talk about that. But when it comes to true crime, the case I will never get off my head is Gabriel Fernandez looking into that poor boy looking at him making those mother days car and then and then oh so like he didn't even get to give it to the mom either and so because he was pulled out of school so quickly that when Garcia went to his desk to clean it out that was the first thing she saw oh wow so like how do you how do you I don't know I, I, it's really hard because like I said I really I don't think the teacher did anything wrong I think Mm-mm. she did everything she could do and I'm heartbroken. I'm I'm legitimately like this case will never get off my head. <sighs> so that's how I feel about that one. And this I think will be the the hardest one I do because the other ones that I I have on my plate that I've been researching and stuff don't hit me as I mean every case hits you hard, but this one this one hits me freaking I don't even know. I think it hits you harder because you do have an eight-year-old son and you're like, I don't understand how someone can look at this child and do this. I know. Like, even, and the fact that, like, oh, at one point, I forgot to say, so his aunt, so his, his mom's sister, he would go over and see her and she saw the bruises on his face and she asked him one time, she's like, what, how'd you get that? And he said, oh, oh, uh, my sibling hit me. Okay, it always turned into my sibling did it, right? And because you're like, oh, okay, your siblings, like, oh, that makes sense because siblings can get rough with each other. I mean, just today, literally, Allie um, was playing around with Tucker and hit him hard and she left a mark on him. So, like, I mean, it happens, okay? I I see it because I have two kids. I see where it happens. So when you hear that, you're like, oh, okay. And you kind of, like, 
dismiss it, right? Thankfully, though, the aunt was like, no, no, like, that doesn't look like that really could happen. Like, I don't think so-and-so could do this. How how did this actually happen? And then he he goes on and he starts crying and he's like, my mom did it. And and one story that the aunt relays is that the mom was holding him down while Asario was hitting him. And in another story, it was, no, my mom was just hitting me. And so the prosecutor or the, the defense attorney is going after the aunt. I was like, well, that's not what you said in the first thing. So why are you changing up your story? And at one point she goes, because it happened so many times that I don't know which story happened or which, which excuse happened with which I. Like she's like, he got hurt so many times. So yeah, I mean, it's so stories. common that I could give you all of the reasons and they're all true. Yeah, and she's crying on on the stand and she's like, you know, at, at one point I started going over there and staying there so I could watch him. Like, and the, the person was like, oh, so you can make sure he was safe. And she's like, so I can make sure all of them were safe. You know, and she was, she's like, I was underage. I was a minor. I didn't know what to do. There was nothing I could do. And, and that's where, like, I can tell, like, a lot of his family have the guilt because a lot of them reached out. They did call. They did take the steps. And that's the problem in this case. You have numerous people taking the correct uh, steps to save this little boy and nothing happens. Like, he asked his grandpa at one time. He's like, can I please come home? I want to come home. And his grandpa started like crying on the stand too. And was like, all I could do was tell him like, you know, uh, buddy, we're doing everything we can. We can't like, we cannot mess up this where you won't be able to come home. Like, you know, I can't, I can't keep you now because then your mom can use that against me. You know, like, like they, they were trying to explain to an eight-year-old and you can't explain that to him. You know, you can't say, I can't take you home because I don't want to intervene with the, with the, the case. Because he's right. If he would have taken him right then and there, it could have been, I mean, he could have, I don't know. It's so up in the air. He could have saved him, but then it could have been, you know, you never get to see him now. And then they, they look towards the mother and they get on her side. Like there, there are so many, there's so many things that happen in this case. And there's so many times he could have been saved, but then like, you're like, well, this is like it. A lot of the fault falls on the police officers too. The little bit that I saw of the, documentary on netflix was like the police officers would get irritated anytime they got a call from them because like of the side of town that they lived on or that they were like they were not a a white family so they're like oh why are we wasting our time and it's like it doesn't matter what color they are where they live like your job is to protect them and if somebody's calling telling you that this child needs your help it it shouldn't matter if he isn't white like you still need to do your job Exactly. There's, there's no reason. There's no reason you should ignore cases. Like there's another case. Um, I'm really glad you said that. There's another case that I, okay. I was a weird kid, like nine years old watching Lifetime movies guys. And like, there was one about, I think it was like Tracy Thurman maybe, but basically it was like the first stalking case or what is it? Protective order. What is that? When you have a, is it, is it just protective custody? No, when you restraining order, restraining order. Thank you. But this woman, she had a restraining order on her ex-husband and she's like, he's very abusive. Like, and she, she did all the steps too. She did everything she was supposed to do to, to protect her and her child. And the cops would start getting so exhausted by her calling and being like, he's at my house. Like he's yelling and screaming obscenities at me and he's banging on the door. Like, come help me. And they would take their time. And the one time that they took like like there was two cops on on like it's a true story there was two cops and they were like eh and they took their time and i think they even went and got some food before they went to her and when they got there she was being brutally stabbed in front of several people 
and nobody could stop this man because he was holding the child and stabbing her and like she won i think she won like a ton of money too because like they sued the police department and station i mean everything and it's like it's cases like that that it's like that it doesn't matter if you get calls on this so many times it doesn't matter if you have it doesn't matter you need to reach out and you need to save these people it's i don't know i don't know it's i don't know i'm shaky again like it's i don't know this one will will sit with me for a very 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 long time like i probably will talk about it when i am on my deathbed like that's that's how passionate i am about this case Mm -hmm. so that is the case of gabriel fernandez and if you are as angry as i am i am sorry like but you should be angry we should be angry we should be very furious at this this is not it's not acceptable and then you know what, too? Hold on. think with the same deple- uh, police department and social services, I think like four years later, there was another case of another little boy around the same age who, who wasn't being fed and was being abused, and he died in custody also. I, I just, I don't understand. Like, it, it's one thing. Well, it's not. It's still not, not. I can't understand it. That you lose a child because you're not doing your job. But then four years later... Like, it should still be fresh on your mind, the last child you lost because of your negligence. And then you lose another one because you can't make the proper reports. Like, you can't do your job. I know. And then some people were like, you know, this they're using the four social workers as a scapegoat. Well, you know what? No. These four social workers saw him. They saw the abuse. They saw the look on him. And they didn't do any. They were like, there's not enough to warrant removing him from the premises and here's my other thing okay i know and they go and oh when i was watching the documentary when they were talking to the social workers and that's probably why i didn't really dive in deeper with them it's because at one point they were showing videos of when they've had to remove children and the children are screaming and crying and holding on to their parents and the parents are screaming and crying and i could not i could not handle that because of my childhood so i I had to stop it but that's what they that's what their excuse was was we always that's always the last resort is to remove the child it's always the last resort it is not the last resort when you see this child and you have accusations that he's being shot in the face with a bb gun yeah it's not a last resort it is a do it now that is a do it right now because the last resort is you finding out he's dead and that's that's what happened it's it's ridiculous and mm. it's not okay so that's that's my first crime time welcome back guys season two <laughs> Yes, welcome back to season two. Be angry. That is going to be my uh, motto for this this episode is be angry. Be angry about it because we need more people to be angry. Okay, guys. So as you can tell, that was a kind of really deep and heavy episode. But like we said, our season two is kicking off with true crime. So we're going to do some more episodes of true crime and kind of go in deeper. So we hope you enjoyed it. Not that it's something to be really enjoying because it's a very sad case but we hope it's taught you something thank you guys so much for joining us on this crazy ride you can find us on instagram at going past the veil twitter at past veil patreon at patreon.com forward slash going past the veil with taylor and cassie you can support us on patreon starting at three dollars a month with early access to episodes and bonus episodes you can check us out on our website at going past the veil with Taylor and Cassie.weebly.com where you can get a link to our Patreon and Teespring merch page. We hope to see you next time and we hope you keep listening. Travel safe.
I guess 